How's it going, everyone? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Brotherson. I'm excited to have everyone in today. I actually have a special guest in studio, in the office, in my cramped little office here. I've got John Lop with me and uh, super excited. Thanks for coming over, John. Thank you very much for having me. So you came all the way from, you came from like Indiana, right? That's right. So you were so interested in like chatting with me. You drew, you just got on a plane and flew from Indiana. Nothing would please me more. <laughs> no, John, John actually came uh, to do some hiking and do some fun stuff here in Utah. And um, John and I have been emailing for the last three years. I didn't even realize this until this morning, but uh, we've been emailing for a long time, right? That's right. Yeah. So is can you can you confirm to the viewers that I actually respond to email or the viewers, the listeners here? Very politely, even yeah. Uh, I'm I'm usually kind of polite. I try I try not to be too. I'm a pretty like direct person, and so sometimes I I type an email and I have to look at it. I'm like, is this really what I want to say? And then I hit send. But no, I try to respond to emails. And so the the impetus for this podcast is I want as as a lot of you guys know, guys and gals know. I like to do stories. I like to interview people. I need to do more of it. And then John sent me an email back in March, about a month ago, a little over a month ago. And it was just, it was pretty cool. He said some really, really articulate things that I want to share with you guys. Um, and so that's, that was kind of the impetus for this. I said, Hey, like, let's get on it. Let's get on a call and do a podcast. Are you cool with that? And he said, yeah. And then a week later he said, I'm actually thinking about being in Utah. So we postponed and then he's in studio. So thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me again. So, yeah, but this is kind of, I wanted to share this just as, as we kind of start here, and then I'll read your, a little bit of your bio here that I, that I have. So John was, was uh, nice enough to send his bio over, or just a little bit about him. But this is, this is the thing that got me. And again, we've been emailing for three years. I didn't even realize it because I get so many email, but he, so many emails. But so he emails me and he says, in, in other things, um, he said, for the past 22 years, it's always been a constant for me. Very few things have been in my life or as few as very, as very few. Okay. I'm butchering this for the past 22 years. Speaking about dirt bikes, it's always been a constant as very few things have been in my life. Since day one, I've been in love with the art of manipulating a machine in opposition of your body mechanics, the timing it requires to traverse obstacles cleanly, the level of comfort that raises and periodically dips with rising levels of danger and sometimes lowering levels of seat time, the humbling thoughts after a mistake or crash or getting beaten. But most of all, it's the absolute one thing that I focus on within, with entirety when I'm doing it. Besides the fact that it's dangerous and can kill you with a lapse of concentration, I love it enough to be totally in the moment, especially in today's world, I crave it more and more. And I'm looking that it was March 15th, I believe, I'm staring at that email and I read it again. And this was the part that got me. He, when he says the art of manipulating a machine in opposition of your body mechanics. And I just was kind of wigging out on that. What, what made you, what made you like put articulate that down into an email? Like, is this something you think about all the time? Like, tell me what was going through your head that made you punch those words out. There's a lot. Um, I was always an athlete growing up and then in college and really learning how to move your body. Um, you know, whether you're throwing a shot, put javelin, whatever it may be, throwing a baseball, football, 
Um, there's certain ways to do it, and it always made sense. But riding dirt bikes seems to be a lot of opposition. Maybe if you're leaning into a turn, you're leaning too much. You need to counterbalance, whatever it may be. Um, and then I got a degree in sports science, biomechanics, things like that. And it just didn't really make sense watching people ride, what they do with their body and feeling it compared to what I learned, you know, in school and stuff like that. And then when you do it right, it's one of the best feelings ever, better than any other athletic, you know, endeavor I've ever done. Um, it's just, it's far better. I love that. So what, uh, so you're, you're about 30, right? From yeah, I'll be 31 soon. 31 soon. You're from Elizabeth, Indiana. You played high school sports. You played college sports. You've got a degree in sports performance. You're a strength and conditioning coach. Retired. Retired. <laughs> well, you don't look like you're retired. Thank you. So CrossFit athlete, firefighter, and most importantly, dirt biker. That's so, right. so you've done So you're a fit guy. So tell me, tell me about like more about these sports that you, that you were talking about where you're, you know, studying the way the body moves and stuff. Like, tell me a little bit about the sports, like the background there. Um, you know, since I was four and five, uh, played baseball, played football in the front yard type of thing. Um, and then when I was 10, I started cross country. So that's where that fitness drive comes from, in my opinion. The runner. Oh yeah. And then, uh. You know, basketball, I think around the same time. Didn't like basketball, but it was something to do in the wintertime. To stay in shape, look good. <laughs> <laughs> something to do to stay in shape. Um, and then uh, started to kind of, you know, when you turn 15, you, in my opinion, that's where you start seeing where you excel. And it seemed to be baseball and running, which is weird. But so I went the baseball route, went to college, had no idea what I was going to do. Hated baseball in college. Hated so it. you liked you loved baseball in high school, but it wasn't fun in college. No, like what? What was the problem? It turned into just a full time job. Okay, and I was wanting to have full time fun with it. I wouldn't go in pro, so I don't know. And you knew that you knew. Oh it, yeah, you're like I'm not. I don't want to go pro, or I'm not good enough to go pro. Like too much competition. What What did that look like? Oh, I could have wanted to as much as humanly possible, but it, it wasn't going to happen. What uh, position? What, what, what position did you mostly play? I went. I walked on shortstop. They moved me to second, and then they put me in left field. And I loved left field. You just throw it as hard as you can, <laughs> run as fast as you can. It was easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. So that's cool. I played baseball in, until high school, and then I got to high school, and I I wasn't good enough. I was like right on the cusp of making the team, and then the coach looked at. He was like, "Oh, I'm going to pull the grades of all these people and just see." And it was between me and this other kid that I uh, was kind of like right on the bubble. And I had failed a test in algebra like the week before. And I went and made it up like the next day. But the teacher didn't make the grade change with the, with the office. So the coach goes down there looking for a reason to cut anyone. And he's like, hey, look, he's not passing algebra. So he pulls me in after a week of tryouts. And he's like, hey, you know, you were right on the bubble, but uh, you're not passing algebra. So you're, you're off the team. And I'm just like, what the heck? And that was the end of my baseball career. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that I had, you know, made the change. He'd already, he was just looking for an excuse to cut one of us. I got cut. So my baseball career ended before, I mean, it ended at high school. I'm so sad. That was another thing that really made me hate it. I wasn't going to talk about it because it's, I didn't want to seem like a whiner, but it was a really political at that time where I went. The coach, his program at his previous college got cut. And so the two of us on the new team, his new team got cut. We come back from winter break, and there's two guys from his old program. 
Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. That was part of it. Yeah. I, I think that happens a lot in sports. You know, even with my even with my son now, who's, well, one of my sons. I've got a 10-year-old son who's playing basketball over the wintertime, and there was times we were frustrated. We're like, why, why is he getting less playing time than some of these other kids when, you know, in our eyes, we're like, he's better than these other kids. What's happening? You know, and there was like a little bit of a disconnect between him and the coach, and then I was just... I was trying not to be that parent, you know, so I was backing off. And there were times that after the game ended, it's a freaking 10 year old kid. And I'm so frustrated after the game. I can't even talk to the coach. I just walk. I'm just like, I don't want to say any, I'm going to regret anything I say right now. So I'm just going to the car, you know, and we, we had like a, we had a, we had a good communication, him and the coach and I and everything. And I was trying to see things from his perspective. And, but even, so even at a really young age, like it can come in, like it's, there's a lot of politics and a lot of like kind of weird stuff in sports. So it ended up being a blessing in disguise though, getting cut from that baseball team. The next year I went and walked on the U of L track team. Um, I was just like, well, I mean, I think I can run fast. U of L that that's Louisville. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then, uh, I think I can run fast and I think I can throw really hard. So I might as well. And they found a spot for me and they helped me out a lot. I really appreciated it, but their strength and conditioning program that they put us through, changed it it changed it like oh that's changed. why i wanted to be an athlete after that just so i could lift weights with those guys <laughs> cool so what what events did you do in track like which ones did you run i started out throwing the javelin um and it's so unique it's a little bit like a big old spear yeah right? it's a spear but it's a little like throwing a football a little like throwing a baseball but a lot of difference i don't know it's hard to explain huh um i've never met a javelin thrower so this is the first for me well, they're all going to be hurt just like me. <laughs> they're going to be hurt? Oh, yeah. Like, well, I, you tear things or UCL, whatever? UCL, shoulders, everything. It's, it's. I just didn't focus what, on mobility. You said ACL or shoulder? Uh, UCL. UCL in your elbow. So, because it's because it weighs so much and you're putting so much. Uh, it's only 800 grams. How much? Like, what does the baseball weigh? Oh, maybe a touch less. I don't, I'm not sure. It's very light. So it's so it's not that heavy, but you're putting so much torque into it yeah. that you end up like ripping your shoulder and ripping your elbow and stuff. I got a hold of my elbow. My shoulder was always fine, but mm. it was bad. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So you so you did the javelin and you said you ran. Like what did you run? Well, after I hurt my elbow, they put me in the the multi, so decathlon, stuff like that. Okay. Sweet. Very good. And then you got you you're into CrossFit. You're, you're a firefighter. Like, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. So when I graduated and there was no more athletics, I was no pro. I just wanted to compete in something yeah. and be, I don't know, keep being an athlete. And so I found that and it was like so much more challenging than anything previous in a certain way. Um, and it was, I was really at the time it's evolved a lot at the time. My numbers were, higher end of the spectrum on, you know, competition. But as time has gone by, I have not gotten better and everybody else has. Yeah. So that's how my life goes. <laughs> it's, it's been like, that's the thing. I mean, everyone does that now. So except for me, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a guy I've got, I've got a rowing machine here and a skier and a bike. I almost never even use the bike. I got the, I got the stationary bike for just rehabbing my ACL. And then I have hardly ridden it since that time. So so tell me, so, so we'll get into your dirt bike here in just a second, but like firefighter, like how did that happen? Like how, how did you become a firefighter? What, what interested you in that? 
Talk about that. In 2013, I saw an ad somehow for uh, a pretty small city up the road from where I grew up. And I just, heck yeah, I'm going to try out. I watched Backdraft when I was a kid. I loved it. <laughs> but uh, Kurt Russell, is that who was yeah. in that? Um, and they didn't take me. And I was like pretty chapped over it. I, you know, I thought I did pretty good and stuff like that. So, And then again, the politics come back into play. I saw or I met a firefighter down the road and he asked if I did it. And he said, yeah, your name came up and you did pretty good. But they hired family. And I was like, oh, so that chapped me. And then several years later, they uh, Louisville put out ads at a CrossFit, every CrossFit gym in the city. I guess they're looking for, you know, people who fit, work out. Fit people. Like yeah. Yeah. And then so I did that. And then I really worked hard, like put my head down and uh, left no doubt. I wanted to leave no doubt. So I came in first in my class and here we are. Oh. So what do you, what, what, uh, what drives you to continue doing that? I mean, it was, looks like it was an ad and then the, the actual documentary backdraft that got you interested, right? <laughs> but yeah. like what, what, Pat, what continues to fuel you about that? Do you like the, you like the physical nature of it? Do you like the team nature of it? What is it? It's no longer backdraft. I've learned that it's not even that. It's not. So you're saying that's not that's not a documentary. No longer in play. <laughs> but uh, mostly like the. It's uh, funny. I thought about that today in the shower because I knew we were going to have this conversation, and I was going to bring up backdraft, and I was like, "This is a this is like a real a real thing, right?" No, you're saying it's not. There's not a lot in it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, so I cut you off there. So, like, what is it? What what keeps you passionate about uh, firefighting right now? A lot of it's the camaraderie. Like for the most part, everybody on the job's a great guy. Um, you know, you spend twenty four hours with each other. You learn, you know, human interaction better than ever. Um, you know, obviously it's some of the, you know, risk factor here and there. That's pretty cool, I guess. Helping people is really great. Um, but a lot of it's you never know what you're going to get. Some days we might not make two or three runs and other days you make 15, you know, two fires, two car wrecks, whatever it may be. Um, so some companies are really busy and others not so much, but I'm kind of in the middle. I like that. What sort of things do you mostly get called out on? Because when I was a kid, I, I thought like firefighters are just running into burning buildings all the time. Now I see most of the time I see fire trucks. It's actually on like traffic accidents and things. So what are the things that you're doing most of the time? Most of the time it's like a heroin overdose or short of breath or something like that. Um, ton of drug issues. And so why does the fire department get, I mean, th there's probably, it seems like fire department comes and the, and the ambulance comes and the police come like, talk to me about why it is that firefighters are responding to like heroin overdoses. Like what, what, what is the reason for that? A lot of it was job security for our department. Um, they made us EMTs, and we'll get there first. So why not, you know? Um, first responder. Yeah. We're literally usually first. If we're not first, it's because we were on what, something else. Why Why? Why is the fire department first? It's because the police are doing other things, and the ambulance, they don't drive as fast? or <laughs> uh, There's just, you know, we're very strategically placed across the city. Okay. And ambulances, they could be anywhere. They could all be downtown at the hospitals. Who knows? Or, Got it. you know, they could be on the interstate, wherever it may be. Um, yeah. So it could be, you know, medical issues, uh, car wrecks, um, wires down, um, water leaks. We get called out for, you know, apartments. The second floor might be leaking. And then, you know, uh, a heavy rescue company comes out because they say their building collapsed. 
just because they want a fix now. And we get up at four in the morning for a tile that fell through the ceiling. Anything. <laughs> wow. So there's so so I don't remember them talking about that in backdraft. I just <laughs> nah. that was back in the day where they didn't make med runs either. Wow. Yeah. And so now there are because I've got a few friends here just in my neighborhood, or at least people that used to live here that are firefighters. Um, and it's always interested me to hear them talk about like these. I don't hear them talking about fires that they're going to. Yeah. How often do you like, so there's a lot, there's a ton of training in this, right? A ton of training in firefighting. So how often are you actually fighting fires? Is it like, is that kind of like a, Oh, look, we go, we get to actually put out a fire or. Um, again, it depends where you're assigned. Uh, the West end of our city is pretty dilapidated. And so they make more, they make fires more often, but a lot of times they're not as severe. Sometimes they're crazy, but, um, I'm in the South end and we make less fires, but the buildings are bigger. The houses are, you know, a little bit more open inside sometimes. So they're, they're rocking usually by the time we get there. You probably got so many cool stories. I, 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 sometimes I get jealous of people that have, you know, gigs like yours. Of course, the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, but I've got buddies. Well, I have a couple buddies that do firefighting and then I've got another buddy that, you know, that does like, um, he's a helicopter pilot. And the thing that I really love about, and you even alluded to it is you never know what the day is going to bring, you know? So it's a little bit different every day. Whereas my, my gig, it's like, I'm just staring at these two computer screens most of the day or staring at, you know, a camera lens, but, uh, oh, that's pretty cool. So you're, you've been dirt biking for a long time. You said 22 years. And if you're only 30, that means you started about eight, right? Yeah. I was almost nine when I started and you haven't really taken, according to your email, you've only taken short breaks. I mean, you said there was like from 2013 to 2015, you were off the bike and I'm going, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of time off the bike. Yeah. I had to pay for college that last semester. So I sold <sighs> my bike and had to, had to do that. Strength conditioning doesn't pay a lot. So I had to slowly build up back to a, I think it was an 08 YZ 250 when I, at that time. Nice. So that's cool. I had the, 2010 450 that's cool so so you've been riding most of your life um let's talk let's talk about that like you said you know in your email that you said that you got kind of interested when the neighborhood kids were riding dirt bikes around in a pasture tell me a little bit more about that yeah they just always had uh to me they were classic dirt bikes but they still have them so they still ride them but anyway um i just loved watching them, let alone doing it myself. Um, you know, I was really little at the time. I was probably five or six when they let me ride on the tank with them and stuff like that. And I loved it. And then. So your parents didn't have bikes. It was, it was the neighbors and different people. My dad had rode motorcycles a little bit before I was born. So, I mean, that's kind of why it was even possible for me to get one. Cause he was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Let him ride. Mom right. was like, nah, mom wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> But yeah, mom, but mom came around or is, is mom, is she still nervous about it? Um, she didn't really get to see it anymore because it's always at the track. It oh. used to be on their property and stuff like that. Um, and she was well aware of the terrain that was just south of their house. Yeah. <laughs> and no, don't go riding in there. And, uh, where they've been for four hours. Well, that's where we were riding. So you were over there. <laughs> So this is around what nineteen ninety nine time frame something like that. Yep, got my first dirt bike in nineteen ninety nine. That's cool. And what was what was this bike? It was a nineteen eighty seven KE one hundred Kawasaki. 
And it was a pile. I'm going to... You continue to talk about this bike. I'm going to Google this right now. I don't know what a KE100 is. I guess it's their attempt at a dual sport bike back in the day. KE... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I got it. I got it. I see what that is. We so... Could, we was, could go buy one right now. This probably, isn't... It wouldn't even be that much money. It's like 100 bucks. Jeez. That's cool. This looks a lot like a lot like what I kind of started on. I don't know if it, what color you had, but I started on a bike that was kind of similar to this. Mine was the well, the first dirt bike. I use that term loosely. Was a 1975 Honda. What would it have been? Honda 250 XLS, I guess, is what it was. So they look. It looks really similar to this, like dual sport type thing. You got the dual the dual shock here on the rear. That's awesome. The metal dented up gas tank. <laughs> Did you just have signal lights like this? They're broken off. But it, so it had them at <laughs> one point. Got the drum brakes on the front and rear. Oh, yeah. Kawasaki was, they went all in on this. You know, it's funny though, because it, this is, so this is where the passion, this is kind of like the origin and, and you still got totally hooked on it. Oh yeah. I was so little as a kid that we had to take the seat off. And I rode on the frame. <laughs> I couldn't reach, and I still couldn't reach. So I had to use an old milk crate and an old wooden bench my dad made. Oh my gosh! So it was if you crashed, you pushed it home or found a way to get it started or something. Here's here's what Kawasaki said about this bike in 1986. They said Kawasaki KE100 takes you where you want to go faster, and it's more fun to boot. Completely street legal. The KE100 gives goes almost anywhere a car does. Are you kidding me? Oh, wait, I get what they're saying. I was, I was sitting there thinking they're saying there's places cars can go that this can't. But it says it goes almost anywhere a car goes for a lot less. Where would this go that a car, where would, where would a car go that this can't? Like the freeway? Is that what they're saying? They didn't have Google Translate back then. Like it goes almost everywhere a car goes? Oh, my gosh. And the KE100 is also equipped for off-road rides. So you can go where most four-wheelers can't. Want to bring a friend along? No problem. KE 100 strong enough. It's strong enough for two. This is, this is great marketing here. We need to go. We need to, we need to like, this is when Kawasaki was in, in demand. Dry weight is 187 pounds. So it's not that heavy. I don't believe it. You think it's, you think it's 200 more than hundred more pounds than that? Oh, I don't know. When I weighed 80 pounds, it probably felt pretty heavy. Oh, that's pretty fun though. It looks fairly comfortable, except for if you took that seat off, it would look really horrible. It sounds, it looks like it'd be really painful to ride that with no seat. That's what I think based off looking at this. Taught me to stand up. That's, that's great. People always say that to me. They're like, oh, don't you like the seat on this bike is like it's, the seat foam is so horrible. And I just look at them kind of with glazed eyes and I'm like, so you're not using it too often. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm wheeling over my, my, my cord here. This is the problems I have here in my office. I'm, I'm, my chair is running over my, my headphone cord. So yeah, that's awesome. So it taught you to stand up. That's good. No seat, milk crate. <laughs> taught me how not to crash. Oh man. Cause it was probably super heavy to pick up. What? Well, yeah. Know? Picking up, but getting started. I couldn't get it started because I wasn't tall enough. So you'd have to, you'd have to like what? Lean it up against a wall and kick it. Or what were you doing? Um, sometimes I would find a little hill, uh, maybe a ditch, whatever, put it in it. 
use the uphill side to stand on it, oh. kick it, or just push it home. <laughs> push it home. It's funny because I have a lot of people that ask me about like, hey, what's a good bike to buy? And I want to get in and I want to do like hard enduro or something like this, you know, like a little bit more technical riding. And they say, I don't need electric start. And I get that. I understand electric start is, you know, maybe it adds to the cost or whatever. But I mean, you just brought it up. I mean, if the terrain is technical and the bike is tall for you, sometimes kicking a bike isn't as fun as you might think. You know, so, so you start out, this is like, when is this? So you were, when is, so you're riding this 87 KX or KE 100. Are we talking around 99 here? What do you think? Yep. So you picked that thing up. Then what, what was the next bike you moved over to? So I don't think I got hurt or anything. It was just a real pain to deal with for my size. So they broke down and got me a K, uh, an XR 100. So that was appropriate. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I just beat it to death. Blew spokes out of it. Tore up forks and shocks and everything. So that didn't last long either. But Do you remember what year that was? Oh, what, what 2000. Bike? It was a 2000 KX100? Oh, no, no, no. XR100. So it was the XR, but what, what year? I think it was a 2000. Got it. I said 2000. Well, that one was pretty new for me then. Yeah. Now these bikes, these bikes, a, a lot of people started on these things, you know, and it's, it's, they were capable bikes. And the cool thing about, the cool thing about these XRs is just how, um, long they lasted. Oh yeah. Air cooled. Send it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you didn't have to, you know, because it's a lower compression bike, that's a horrible picture, but it lower compression bike and they just, they went forever, you know? like their little Honda CRFs. In fact, they still make them, you know, these, these bikes go forever. And I think something that people miss a lot is I think Honda still makes more engines than anyone else in the whole world. Like if you just, I've been told that because they make car engines, they make lawnmower engines, motorcycle engines, all these things. I think they make more than anyone. And then you put, you put one of these air cooled motors in these bikes and it'll go, it'll last through anything apocalypse if we had a zombie apocalypse this would be one of the bikes you'd want because it's light no maintenance zero maintenance doesn't sip a lot of it sips fuel right oh yeah so ride all day in a tank when you're you know a little kid and not able to ride that hard what's your funnest memory from this honda man there's a lot of them how old do you think you were at this time i was 10 10 man i just getting on it and just having fun, you know, from the time I was allowed to get on it till they made me get off of it. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, it was such a good time. I remember, oh, my funnest memory was acting like I was Sebastian Tortelli, a French motocross champion, and just making ruts and just angering my dad. I'm so glad you, <laughs> you explained who he was because you saw me glaze over. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. Yeah, I just put his number on there and just, you know, even like be like David Bailey commentating my little race I had in the yard or, or the field or commentating your own race. Yeah. Got it. Good times. So that's cool. And your dad, mom, who helped you get this bike? I mean, both parents, because this is one of the problems. Kids email me all the time and they're like, Hey, uh, you know, how do I get this motorcycle? You know, I want this bike or whatever. And man, it's, I mean, just think about it. If you're 10, I mean, how are you going to make enough money to buy one of these things? Even even if it, even if if it's ten years old, you know. Okay, so maybe it's five six hundred bucks or something. Maybe it's a thousand dollars. 
you can't do that unless you have your the help of your parents, right? Yeah, I just uh, helped get my nephew a little dirt bike. I think it's a 125 four-stroke. And I'm like, I want him to ride. I'll spend money if I have to. You know what I mean? So um, his grandparents helped out. Yeah. So you're right. It takes help. You kind of need it. And I email that back to, you know, these kids that email me. And I even get, sometimes I get these pretty decent emails from like a 10-year-old kid or whatever. You know, I get a lot of emails from kids probably from 12 to 16. And it's hard to know how old they are. But you can kind of tell based off, you know, the sentence structure and things and what they're saying. And and part of my response back is like, hey, you're going to need a job and this stuff. But at the end of the day, you're going to need some help. You're going to need some help from somebody who's a little bit more established than you. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle aunt because there's going to be some things you just you're not going to be able to make this money maybe you could do a little uh segue on your sweepstakes kids bike i could i probably should just give one away i'm always kicking around bikes here so we got i got to rebuild one of my kids bikes one of one of the ones that we used to ride i need to rebuild it again went out on a camping trip motor seized so (laughs) that's a long that's a long story so yeah, so that's pretty cool. So then you moved up. There was a bunch of bikes. You had a CRF two thirty in here, YZ two fifty. So what do you think if you had to say? Because you you list a whole bunch of bikes. You've got the K the KE one hundred, the XR one hundred, and ATK LQ two fifty. That was a death trap, by the way. That's the most interesting story I have about Go new f- bikes. Let's hear it. So, like I said, the hundred I just kept blowing spokes out, just bending rims. The forks just the seals wouldn't last. I just had outgrown the ability of that bike, which is not a lot. I'm not saying I'm awesome, but it is what it is. And then my dad, being the sweetheart he is, okay, I'll get him a bike that can handle it. At this time, I'm 11 years old. He gets me a 250 two-stroke, ATK LQ 250. If you look it up, it's... I'm going to look this up. You keep talking. You'll be blown away by what this looks like. Yeah. <laughs> It's shock was on the left side of the swing arm. Just one or actually maybe the right side, whichever side the kickstart was on the left. The chain drive was on the opposite side. Uh, it was an American is made here in Utah. I think. Are you serious? Yeah. They quit making them in 03. I believe um, it was a 1999 ATK. Yep. That's uh, it right there. I'm going to go to Google. I'm, I'm on duck, duck go and I'm not getting as good a pictures as I want. The uh, radiator shrouds are the gas tank. <laughs> we'll go here, do image search. I can't believe it was made in Utah. I, th- I believe it was, yeah. This is crazy. And you said the kickstart was on the opposite side? Kickstart on the left. Look at that. Like, so the, like, yeah, the fuel tank, there are no shrouds. It's just the tank. I mean, that isn't a horrible idea. That's kind of interesting. So you're 10? What did you say? How old were you? 11. 11, and they put you on this bike. This Is this a full-size bike, or is it more? No. Is it a little, a little smaller? Full, eight, too big. Too so big. How, how tall are you? I mean, I've got a 12-year-old, and I can't. there's no way I can put him on a full-size bike. So it was the, the KE100, but more dangerous. So I had to use the milk crate, the, you know, the wooden bench, take the seat off. But we made a little wooden platform, and we... Uh, stapled some foam to it so I could at least reach the milk crate. And I rode that around, but that was the worst thing you could do for your technique and confidence and everything like that. It was just too powerful, obviously. But he didn't know any better. He was just trying to do what he thought would work. And who was this that decided? <laughs> My dad. It, it, and he, okay. It was a cheap bike. I think he got it for like 
nine hundred bucks or something like that. The frame had cracked and they welded it back together and they were like, Oh, he's not big enough. He ain't gonna hurt that thing and it was just stupid. He had rode ridden like nineteen seventies motorcycles, so he uh-huh. didn't understand the you know, the magnitude of the new motors, I guess. Oh. They're saying like some of these bikes had Rotax engines. This oh, might yeah, not. mine did. That's crazy. So full size bike as an eleven year old kid. <laughs> it's amazing you're still here. Oh yeah, that's what I, everybody I, said. I get there was a kid that emailed me just in the last week and he said he was like twelve. Um and even to his credit, he gave me his like specs. He said he was like uh, you know, five eleven, hundred and eighty pounds. So basically he's an inch shorter than me, but he's fifteen pounds heavier than me. But he's still twelve. And he's like, So I'm thinking about getting this bike and it was like a four fifty. Nah. Four fifty four stroke. You know, he's like, I've got this uh, here's this bike, it's twenty sixteen, four fifty, and I can afford it. Do you think this is a good bike for me? And I just I spent some time. I'm like, look, I understand that you have the build of a man at this point, but most men don't need that bike. Like there's very few men that need a four fifty. And I can guarantee you at 12, 13, whatever, you don't need that. And because that's even a bigger exaggeration than what, than what you were on here with this, this ATK and, and yeah, no, that's crazy. So, and then, and then you step back down. So you go from this mean machine and then you kind of go back to a CRF 230, right? Yeah. Well, we blew I blew it up twice and I'm not real sure, but I think it's because I was so light. It wasn't pulling. It's like revving it wide open on the stand. That's my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was, it wasn't pulling anything. So I blew it up twice and got tired of rebuilding. Oh, dad got tired of rebuilding it. And uh, we sold it off. I don't I'm gonna try to remember how that went. Actually, didn't sell it. Traded it for a 92 S10 and 500 bucks. So that's how I got my first truck. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, then we went back. What did you need a truck for when you were 12, though? 11? No, I was like 13 at this time. So I had it for a couple years. But you couldn't drive at 13. No, but we were thinking ahead. Okay. So dad was like, you'll grow into the bike. You'll grow into the truck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay. (laughs) That whole thing about you'll grow into the bike, if there are any dads out there listening, don't listen to that. Like, we want want you to be the right size for the bike. We don't want you to, quote, grow into it. In fact, even if you're a full-grown man, let's not have you grow into a bike. Let's get you a bike that is appropriate power for you now, not appropriate power for you in five years when you get better. Because this is, it's not a good, it's not a good, it's a recipe for disaster, right? For one, for one, it was really dangerous, obviously. Two, it taught me absolutely horrible technique. <laughs> like what, what, like what, what did it, what were, what was the problems? So try keeping your elbows up when the handlebars are in your face. You know what <laughs> okay. I mean? Stuff like that. Uh, Wait in the outside peg when you can barely reach it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just a little tiny fine things. Looking back, there's no way I was able to ride it right. Yeah. So, well, and guys, I have dads that will email me and say, yeah, my son's 14. I'm thinking, and he can, he can ride my 300 two stroke or he can ride my 450. So I don't see why I shouldn't just put him on that bike. And I'm just, I don't know what to say. I'm like, let's walk before you run, man. You know, and it's calling the kettle black because a lot of us adults didn't do it that way, but we're trying to, we're trying to like help other people not make those same mistakes. So then you go back to a CRF 230 which is like you were on this race bike and then you go over back to this heavy trail bike. And obviously that was going to be probably more, it was probably going to be a little bit less maintenance on the CRF 230. You, you didn't blow that up, did you? No, the motor 
lasted eight years and I sold it. It never did you even change? Did you even change the oil once in eight years? Oh yeah, because <laughs> you don't have to. I swear you can run those things. We had a we had a Suzuki. Uh, it was a two thirty four wheeler. It was a nineteen eighty six. My dad would probably be mad. He he listened to these things. He listens to these things, and he'll probably take issue with this. But I'm not sure that oil was ever changed in like twenty years. It didn't matter because the thing just it just went and went and went. Me and me and my sisters rode that little four wheeler like every day for ten years, and maybe my dad was changing the oil secretly uh, at night when we didn't know. But he had so many things going on, and he's gonna hate because he's a mechanic. He's a good. He's a fantastic mechanic. All this stuff, but I don't think he was. Point is, those motors can run forever. And I know you're talking Honda. I'm talking Suzuki. But, man, those old air-cooled motors, they're bulletproof. Yeah, know? there was no secrets. My dad did maintenance. There was wrenches pinging across the... <laughs> oh, yeah. And my dad did maintenance. I'm just thinking, like, he, had, he was building all these things and stuff. And it's just amazing what some of these little bikes and stuff can go through. Yeah. You know? And that's one of the things that people complain about with bikes today. Like maybe you had, you know, back in the eighties or the nineties, you had some of these, you know, trail bikes like an XR 100 or CRF 230 or, or whatever. And you're thinking, man, we rode it all the time. We beat the heck out of it and, and it never broke. And then they get like a newer bike, you know, one of these high, high compression, high performance motors or something. And then, you know, they have like some cam problem or whatever after 50, 60 hours. And they're like, everything's made crap today. I look at it and I go, well, we're just trying to squeeze so much more power and so much more performance out of these, you know, these engines that there's, they're less reliable than they used to be. And I'd like to know, you know, who is having these issues or is it really fast guys putting a lot of stress on a motor? Because I, you know, I've never had one motor issue out of any 450 I've ever had. I can't ride it hard enough to hurt it. I was just listening to a podcast. It was on Gypsy Tales. Um, I don't know if you listened to that. Yep. Um, and he had Ryan Hughes on just recently. I haven't heard that one yet. And they, I loved it because they were, they were talking about Ryan Hughes is sitting there going like the four fifties are too fast. Yep. He's like the four fifties. And here's a guy who was, you know, riding at the most competitive level, like around 2000 and she's 48 now. So you can do the math, but he still rides. And so he's still probably one of the most talented people on the planet on a dirt bike. And he's like, I can't ride a four fifty. He's too fast. And he's talking about, you know, how, but yeah, it's funny too, because people, I get emails of people that are having motor problems or this problem or that problem. And then people generalize so much and they say, Hey, well this like, give you an example, a beta beta. Like there was one guy that, you know, had like a, a seal go out on a beta two stroke. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of generalizing here, but this is the way I see it. One guy has a problem on his seal on the beta. It gets like repeated on the internet. And then suddenly there's like all betas have this problem and every beta is going to blow up because the seal is going to go bad. Like people just repeat this stuff over and over. I don't think that's the, I think reliability on that motor is totally fine. You know, just because one person had a problem doesn't mean that every single bike is going to have that problem. You know, in fact, I had that email today. People are asking me, do you think, you know, the reliability on, you know, Yamaha is better than KTM because I, I think it is. And I'm going, well, okay. <laughs> If I look back at all the machines I've had, and if I if I count in all the even the four wheelers, we're talking probably seventy different machines. Wow! And there's forty of my full size dirt bikes, just that. And then if I factor in the kids' bikes, I'm probably pushing fifty five. And then if you put in all the machines I've kind of 
been around clear back to the time I was six, it's going to be somewhere around 70. I haven't seen that one brand has more reliability than the others. Suzuki, Kawasaki, Honda, Yamaha, Gat, you know, KTM, it, it, you know, some of them now you have to do more maintenance on some of these like more high performance machines, but I wouldn't say that one is more reliable than the other. It just, as far as from brand to brand, you know, you get a Honda 450, you get a Yamaha 450. I mean, you're probably going to get the same amount of engine hours out of all those things. And, and every rider is different if you're doing maintenance on them. So you went, so you, then you have a YZ250, you have, you have a four, you have a couple four, you have three or four four fifties in here. Yeah. I got to a point where I was just trying them all. Yeah. No, I think that's great. You were doing, and you were doing two strokes. You went YZ250, CRF450R, KTM 250SX, you know, so you're, you're literally going two stroke, four stroke, two stroke, four stroke. That's why I, in fact, and then you went YZ450F four stroke. Then you went Sherco 300. I'm assuming this is in order. Then you go KTM 450 and then you go CRF 450. So you've literally bounced two stroke, four stroke for the last several bikes. You're just going one or the other, one or the other. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so the 230 was great. It was underpowered for where I was at you know, in my riding and I really had to learn how to ride in my opinion, much better to get, to squeeze everything out of it. And it was great, you know, fork seals here and there, but that's not what it was meant for. It wasn't supposed to be jumped. Um, and then the YZ two fifties, that's when I was like, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> at that point, how old are you on the YZ two fifty? I was, uh, 19, almost 20. What do you, what year do you think it was? Uh, 2010. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're so you're now. This is you probably. It's a new bike then, right? No, it's, uh, it was was O three. Saw the steel frame. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I didn't know anything about it at that time, but looking back, I was like, I've always liked a steel frame. That's why I'm back on a KTM now. I just enjoy the way it feels. Hmm. So, but it was. This is a this is a real dirt bike, full on motocross bike, and you're 19, so you're right in the prime of that. So, is it? When do you think? When do you think? When do you think you really got addicted to this? When when did you become addicted to the point where you know years later you're talking about this art of manipulating the machine? When did that sink in that this is going to be? Maybe it was on the first bike, but I'm just wondering if there was like a transition period in here where you knew, like I'm I'm never going to get rid of this. Yeah, that part wasn't super early because again I had no teachers. I mean. My dad said, let the clutch off easy and easy into the throttle. That's about all I got. You know, no offense to him. He just didn't know. Um, you know, reading magazines and stuff like that as you grow up and, you know, reading Kevin Windham articles, stuff like that. Um, Number 14. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got out of riding for a while. So I would say when I really started really appreciating technique, and not just how much better it makes you ride, how much it hurts your, how much less it hurts your body. Um, probably 2019 was when I really started getting hardcore about technique and things like that. So it's only been in the last few years that you've really, who like you, did you find a trainer around the track that you were riding? Like how did that work? No, I was just in an extremely unhealthy part of my life before that, the previous three, four years. Um, very dark uh, relationship type of thing. And then that was something to focus on. I was like, I'm going to get really good at this. I rode so much that summer. I got tendonitis in both elbows and it was wild. Like two, three times a week, 
you know, it was great. <laughs> so a lot of track time there. Oh, and yeah. you just kind of poured your poured your focus into that. And at that point you realized, hey, there's something more here. Yeah. Oh, I was just like if you can at least make it feel good. I might not be going the fastest on the track, but I might feel the best and look the best type of thing, whatever. Have the most fun type of thing. It was just a little internal challenge. Like how can I be better? Maybe not faster, but better. Um, and getting in the vet class and racing was a good little perk. I was only a year away. So I was like, I better get good now. <laughs> the vet the vets are like 30, right? Yeah. So you're just barely, you're just barely entering that. So I haven't done any racing yet. It just hasn't interested me, but I do think it's so funny how we call 30 year olds veterans in, oh, this, yeah. in this sport. I mean, where else is a 30 year old a vet? Yeah. You know, I, when I first saw, I would, I was looking at like different things and I'd see like the vet class in my head. I thought that was like 50, 60. I'm like, no, it's 30. It's like senior, but, and that's, and that's another problem with just like categorizing someone like that. I have all these emails from people that I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. Am I too old to start? What's your answer? What's your answer? What's your thought of that? I mean, if 30 is a vet and you get a 50 year old emailing you, if a 50 year old man or a 60 year old man emailed you right now and says, Hey John, I'm 50 years old. Have I missed the boat? What is your answer? I'm going to say absolutely not. Just get on the right boat, get the right bike, have the right mindset. If you're getting in it to be like your 20 year old son, you're probably on the wrong foot already. Um, Just do it because you enjoy it. And that's it. Like don't, bring ego to the track or to the trail, whatever it is and have fun. You'll avoid injury and you'll like it a lot more. Yeah. See, I, I totally agree with you. I think that we can have, that's one of the best things about this sport is you can have fun at any age. Let's say baseball. I mean, if we, if we roll it back to baseball, if you've never played baseball and then you start as you're 50, I mean, yeah, I guess you could have fun. Like you get on a softball team or something and it might be kind of fun, but it does kind of seem like it's different. Because that's a team sport. In dirt bikes, it's just, it's just about you, you know, and it's it's about you and your development, and you can have fun at any speed, at any age, any discipline, you know. If you don't want to be out there on the track with a bunch of other people, you can go out on do some trail riding, and it's just about you gaining more confidence, getting more physical fitness, working on technique, and then slowly, you know, one of the things I loved about it is I could improve even if I only rode every other week. You know, whereas other, there were other aspects of my life, whether it was long range shooting or, or air, flying airplanes or, you know, playing guitar or various activities where it was like, I had to devote so much more time to it in order to see improvement. Whereas on this, and it's probably cause I was starting at zero, but with dirt bikes, I could see real improvement without, you know, having to put in a bunch of time and it just, I don't know, it just, it worked for me. And I have so many people that email me every week that, you know, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm just getting into this. Am I making a mistake? And the, the, fun, the other funny thing is there's a lot of social pressure too, where if you're 50, even if you're 30, 40, whatever, there's all these people that will come at you and say, Hey, why are you doing that? You're just going to get hurt. Do you hear the, Do you hear those? Do people oh, talk about that? For years, I lived with a woman who just every time you go ride, that's what I heard. Don't jump that jump. That's too big. You're going too fast. Uh, you know, I don't want to hear that literally talking about breaking your neck and your arm. That's the last thing I want to hear before I'm going to try to have fun. I mean, it could happen. You could die, but it's still fun. If you let it be, 
Um, you know, my mom was like that early on, wasn't allowed to race, wasn't allowed to go to the motocross track. Um, again, I'm a, I was a product of my environment with the, you know, GNCC type stuff, more, uh, technical enduro type stuff. Um, and again, the motocross is more of a, I'm going to do it while I can because I couldn't do it then. Yeah. Um, yeah, but back to your point. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I don't even remember. I'm just listening to what you're saying. I just think it's so funny how, you know, we, 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 society puts these limits on us and, you know, they, they label motocross or, or just dirt bikes as dangerous. And I'm just like, the more I do this, I'm like, no, it's not any more dangerous than any of these other things. I mean, maybe, maybe you could say there's more danger than playing golf, but I mean, people get injured playing golf, you know, people get injured playing basketball. And if you're going to have an active lifestyle, you've got to be okay with an, you know, a certain level of risk. And that's the same thing we have in this sport. And as you get better and better, I mean, I guess it looks, it looks even more scary to someone who, uh, doesn't ride if you, if you, if you don't do any riding, you don't see any of the work that goes into this. And then you just watch somebody go get hit a triple. It's like, that looks so dangerous. But if you, if you say, Hey, this person has been training for this for five years and they've hit that jump face 900 times, you know, and you, you don't get the context behind it. So that, I think that plays into it a lot. It is a little bit sweeter too. When you come back, you know, my captain's like, you need to give that up. He wants what's best for me, but I don't want to hear that. And you come back from the track and you're having so much fun and you're like, yeah, that was great. And he, and he's like, Oh, okay. I was worried about your safety. And now you're talking about how much fun you had. So that's pretty sweet too. <laughs> yeah. And it keeps you, it keeps you in shape. It, it keeps you in shape and it gives you something to live for and something, an outlet on stress, you know, and that's a real thing. It's a, I did a podcast maybe a year or so ago with, a, with, um, Dr. Dom. Um, and he, he's a psychologist and he was talking about how unbelievably uh, how he thinks it's just one of the best things you can do to, you need to find something to get your mind straight and to help process stress and process pressure. And he's like, dirt bikes does that on a, like a different level than a lot of other sports in some of the, because if you think about it, okay, you're a firefighter, you got a high pressure job, you know, you got your life, you've got everything else that's going on. And it's nice to have something to kind of process those, that stress out and process that energy out. And dirt bikes is a, is a good way to do it in, in part because you have to be present. You alluded it, you alluded to it in the email that I referenced earlier, which was just that it's the one, it's the thing that you said, it's the absolute one thing that I focus on with entirety while I'm doing it. And I think what that makes us do is it forces us to be present. If you're actually riding and pushing yourself, there's so many things coming at you. You're having to make so many decisions all at once. You can't be thinking, you can't be thinking about the, you know, your taxes or, or whatever, because you've, it's, it requires all of you. It requires all of your attention and that makes you present in the moment. And that is addicting in and of itself. Do you find that to be the case that it, you just you you crave that feeling of just having to focus on on one thing? Absolutely, um, it's always been that way. I don't know if I got a little ADD or whatever, but uh, you have to focus. For one, you'll get hurt if you're thinking about maybe your wife is upset with you that day and you're thinking about it. But she, apparently, she's really supportive of you riding a bike. And I got a woman in my life now that's super supportive. She's not talking about money or, or getting hurt. So I can focus. Like you said, um, it's just so much easier when you have support 
but it, you, you know, you don't really need it. Yeah. Cause you can be addicted in the moment and focus in the moment and all those things. So let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some of the, um, things you say, you said that you built an arena cross track <laughs> and an enduro cross track. Where, where's this stuff at? Like, can I, can I come and be your neighbor? Yeah, I'm sure my parents wouldn't mind. But uh, yeah, I grew up on a retired farm between my dad and my uncle. It was about 55 acres, 56 acres. So it was really nice. Um, awesome. Some wooded, some crops. Uh, it was paradise for a kid on a dirt bike. And so you're a kid. How old are you making this stuff? Enduro cross track. Um, I started on the XR100, and that's where the forks and shocks came into play. Uh you know, mom and dad kind of compromised. Oh, let him build a jump. No, it's too dangerous. Well, what if I plow the field up and he has to make it with a shovel? So dad would plow the field, you know, that little spot, and I would just take a shovel and make jumps. I mean, they weren't huge. I mean, my biggest one was like 40 feet, at, 35 feet at the time. I think we measured. You made a 35-foot jump with a shovel? Yeah. I made berms, whoops, like doubles. I mean, again, it wasn't crazy. These were like super precise landings because they were tiny. Uh, but, yeah, you just hit them hard as you can. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that looks like. People probably don't believe me. How but do you make true. a 35-foot jump with a shovel? I mean, man. It's like a foot wide. This is not a legit arena cross. It's like a single-person arena cross. But, but it was still, still I'm just trying to think how that, how that would even look. That's awesome. See, I'm uh, as a kid, I'm making like jumps from my pedal bike, but we were making them out of like dumb little wood blocks, and there was no landings. It was like you just stack up a bunch of blocks, and you've got a board, right? And you're going hitting that. But I wasn't doing a 35 foot jump on my bike. I mean, that's funny. So you're out there. So you have farm equipment, but you're not. Mom and dad are not letting you use that to make this stuff. You're just making it with shovels. Well, they compromised. Mom said no. Dad said yeah. And so, so they, they had to make me work for it. Met in the middle. And then after a year or two of that, dad just helped. You know, took the uh, greater blade and pushed the dirt, and I shaped it with a shovel. Then they got big. Then it was like, I don't know. I think it was almost fifty feet, if I can remember correctly. I don't remember the exact. It wasn't quite fifty, but it was close. So that when the tractors came in, it was a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, I I I don't have any experience with that. I would love to buy some property and just build my own, or even pay somebody to build a sweet arena. Well, like an enduro cross is probably be more up my alley. But it would be fun to have some motocross stuff, you know, and, and ride some of that. Right beside it, I had enduro cross. <laughs> That's awesome. No wonders. No wonders. So so uh, if I say. If I say, if I give you these names, Shane Watts, Mike Lafferty, Randy Hawkins, um, you mentioned these people in an email to me. Like, what what do these names mean to you? How have they influenced you? Well, I mean, motocross is much more glamorous. There's a lot more money in it and flashy, all those things. But I grew up in the fields in the woods, and uh, GNCC used to be televised. I think it was an hour of it. They you know, pack the race into an hour mm -hmm. and I would just sit there and watch it without blanking for an hour. It's like, that's what I do. Not as fast and not as well, but that's the stuff I do. And so those names really stuck out. Um, Shane watch was just a wild guy from yeah. Australia type of thing. And Mike Lafferty, he was great, had enduro speed, but he had horrible conditioning, stuff like that. I remember, um, you know, what was that? 20 years ago almost. So I don't, so I know Shane, why well, I, I actually personally do know Shane. I've ridden with Shane Watts and I know of Mike Lafferty. We've emailed back and forth. Um, Randy Hawkins. Who's, who's he? Tell me, I don't know him. 
He, uh, I think he went from quads to bikes in GNCC, champion in both, and I think he runs the Ampro Yamaha GNCC squad. I think. Okay. In North Carolina. Cool. So he's he's really plugged in. Oh yeah. Still. <laughs> no, that's great. You know what? What? And I've I've shared this story before, but with Shane Watts, I've done it. I've done one of his riding schools. I need to do some more, but I've ridden with him several times. Um, and <laughs> oh. He well, the, a couple times I've ridden with him. He was on, on a TT a Yamaha TTR two thirty. So here you are, a <laughs> national like six days in you know enduro champion. A person you know who he's one of these people. I don't, I'm sure Shane doesn't listen to this podcast, but he's one of these people who's like one of the more talented people to ever even be on a motorcycle, touch a motorcycle, and then he can ride a TTR two thirty, which all of us are thinking like, oh, this is this a trail bike for you know fourteen year old kid or whatever. You I you can't touch the guy. You can't. Well, I can't. I can't touch the guy. He's on. He's on this little bike that you think this is thing is clapped out. His brakes are completely worn out, and it doesn't matter. He's just pulling away. Like you see him for a couple. We're just riding, you know, out in the desert or the woods or the mountains or whatever, and you see him for a couple a couple little corners, and then next thing you know, it's just tire tracks, and there's no dust. That's the other thing too. He's not. He's not. He's not like spinning out of you know. He's not skidding the tire. He's not skidding the tire braking. And he's not he's not like spinning the tire. Bike doesn't have enough power to spin the tire. But he just pulls away from you. And, and it's, it comes down to that technique thing. And you wouldn't think it's even possible. And I've even said, hey, Shane, like ride my bike for a second. I want to ride yours. And it was, you know, probably one of the worst bikes I've ever thrown a leg over. I thought I was going to die. Because like, I don't know. But he it didn't matter to him. And And that's really where I... I think about that all the time. People email me and they say, hey, I've got this bike and I want to do this, this, and this. I want to put this ECU on it. I want to make this. And what I'm really hearing is I have, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm hearing in my head is the person says, I have this motorcycle and I'm able to use 30% of its capability. I want to add 5% more capability to the bike. So now all I'm hearing is now I'm going to have a bike that I can only use 25% of its capability. And I just wonder, and I think about this Shane Watts thing, and he said something to me that I have never been able to forget. He said that, and this is a, one of these, you know, champion riders. He said, I like the, my favorite bike is a 125 two stroke. I'm like, why Shane? And he says, it's because that's the, that is the most power that I've ever been able to get pretty much everything out of it. And I'm sitting, and he's like, he's like, you put me on a 252 stroke, 254 stroke, 454 stroke. He's like, I can't even sniff at like getting all of the power, all of the capability out of that bike. So his favorite bike is a 125 two stroke because it's the bike that he feels like he could almost maximize, like um, get almost everything out of it, like 97%. And I sit there and I go, well, then the chances of me ever maximizing a 125 two stroke are exactly zero <laughs> based off of what I can see from this man. And now he's, 45 50 somewhere in there you know it's it's super humbling have you have you ever been able to ride with somebody like that where it was just so humbling oh so i don't know if you know ryan sipes oh you've ridden with ryan yeah oh my head not with him he's been blowing by me but technically i guess with him we, he's still like we see him on the super. He's he's like racing super. I yeah, mean, he's from he Kentucky. Races, he races all these different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So tell me about tell me about your experiences with Ryan. So he's a super nice guy, very confident, 
but incredibly nice. Like I had a really bad, not bad, but really big crash, bad looking. And he stopped and he's like, all right, man, he didn't have to do that. He's out there training, you know, working for the next race. I really appreciated that. You know, um, I actually have his bike right now. His 2019 450. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he, I'm not going to say he detuned it, but he made it so easy to ride. And I was wanting to get into that a little bit later. When yeah. You were talking about the power. Um, yeah, but you know, guys like that show up at the track and you know, his brothers and friends are really fast. So Ryan Sipe seems like to me, maybe because right, he, he races like all these different disciplines. He does flat track. He does motocross. He's done some supercross. He's like done rally like racing GNCC Dakar type stuff. I mean, it seems to me like he might be one of the most well-rounded riders on in the, in the world right now. Absolutely. Just be, if you, if you think about it, you look at, you look at like supercross, you get, you got these guys that go to every single supercross race and can't qualify can't qualify for the main event. And then you got a dude, Ryan Sipes, who's running all this other stuff. One week he could be doing flat track. The next week he goes to the Daytona Supercross and the guy qualifies. Not just qualifies. I think he qualified fourth in Georgia. Like that's insane. And yeah, and obviously he's not I mean, things happen in the and he's he was racing two fifties. This is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Two fifty four stroke. Here but here's a guy who could ride anything. Oh yeah. You ride anything. And it doesn't sound like he's riding hard. Obviously, he's in the meat of the power and stuff like that, but he's not screaming a motor. You know, so when I've heard him, he's on a 450. He just rides it. That's why I bought it. I was like, I know it's taken care of. Yeah. He's just blowing everybody away and just riding so smooth. Well, they, they said that on that. I was plugging this other podcast. It was, I can't remember who it was, but I was listening to podcasts and they were talking about um, Ryan Dungey back in the day when Ryan was kind of in his deal. And they, it was this film, this film crew or whatever. And they said, Ryan Dungey was able to kind of get everybody off the track, you know, so we could do some hot laps or whatever. So you're at the track and it's super noisy because there's all these bikes and suddenly, you know, everyone gets off the track and Ryan just does a few laps and they're like, you couldn't even hear his bike. Couldn't even hear his bike. Cause he's not. And that was one of the things they were talking about is how the 450 has so much power that now you got a guy who's out there getting most of what the bike is capable. But that the point was. Even Ryan Dungey is not able to get everything out. He doesn't even need to get anything out of the bike. He can ride the bike and you can't even hear it because it has so much freaking power that he's a and he's setting a track like a lap a track record for lap times or whatever. And you can't even hear the bike. So you you saw the same thing with Ryan Sipes. Pretty much. Like, yeah. It's just quiet because you don't need to get on it more than quarter throttle. It's a weird it's a, yeah, it's a weird feeling when he's coming up behind you. Again, disclaimer, I am not that good. I'm like, I race C-class sometimes, depending on what I'm doing, B-class sometimes, if I want to get my money back maybe. Not that good. So when a pro is going by you, it's incredibly humbling. You're like, wow. <laughs> Chris Kiefer said that. I was listening to Chris Kiefer. You know who Chris Kiefer is? Mm-hmm. So he was, he, a couple of years back, he was trying to qualify for like, a, you know, an outdoor national or something. And he spent like months, you know, and obviously he's a good rider. He's a test rider, rides all the time. And he talked about that, how intimidating it is to be on the track with like a Marvin Muskan or an Eli Tomac or, or a Ken Roxon or whatever behind you. And they're like revving their bike to like get you to pull over, you know? And I'm just like, dang. See, he's so polite. He just goes around you. I just hold my line and he's going to go. Sipes Sipes just finds a way. 10 times faster anywhere on the track. It doesn't matter. I just go where I want and he'll blow past me. 
I think that would be so, it could be super frustrating and dangerous to be one of these pros and then ride with like, you know, regular Joes or whatever, because you don't know what they're going to do. You have no idea. Make more mistakes. Yeah. And so it's kind of dangerous. It's probably way better for guys like that to ride just next to another pro. Yeah. I know Chad Reed said that like a couple of years back, he was, you know, as Chad was, his career was kind of ending in supercross. He was talking about how, um, he'd rather ride with top 10 riders because he knows what they're going to do. If he gets with like, you know, your 20, your 20th riders or whatever, obviously they're way better than most people will ever be. But Chad Reed was like, I can't, I don't know what they're going to do. So he's like, I'd rather ride with the top 10 dudes. Even if they're faster than me, at least I know that they're not going to do something stupid in front of me. Whereas, so that would be the thing. Oh man, Ryan Sipes. like to meet that guy sometime. Super cool. So you also wrote, you also have Kevin Windham, uh, Travis Pastrana, Villeman. Talk to me about those guys. Like what, what do they mean to you? That's in the, that's in the motocross genre, right? Yeah. So obviously Kevin Windham was incredible and he won races and stuff, but he was kind of always an underdog in my opinion. Uh, he was from the Midwest too, wasn't he? I think he's from Oklahoma, uh, Mississippi. He's from oh, Mississippi. Okay. Um, so I always wanted him to win a championship on like the big bike, but nobody really, it was always McGrath and Carmichael and these guys. So, cause he did it in the lights class, like in the one twenty fives or the two fifty. It was probably right in that transition time when they were going to yeah, four like strokes. 99 East or something like that. Hmm. 98, maybe whatever. Um, and then, uh, Villeman, he was tall. He always had a weird bar set up, and I just I kind of liked him because he was different, and I was, you know, into different stuff, I guess. Yeah. So what what makes you tick now? I mean, obviously, you, you dirt bikes are a big part of your life. You know, fitness is a big part of your life. Um, how do you balance that stuff? How do you balance work and work training, working out, uh, dirt bikes? What does that balance look like? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work. You know, I mean, you spend a lot of time at work. Um, how do you try to, what do you do to find balance in your life between fitness of it? Obviously you're a fit guy. How does that look? Um, lately fitness has been tough cause all I do is hurt myself. Uh, it's weird. Just, you know, a little strains here and there. I've had a couple knee surgeries, things like that. I think that has translated to other injuries. Um, but what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? So you had a knee, what, what, what injuries did you have? So left knee, both meniscus, no big deal. Um, I think I did another one in summer last year. Is this like CrossFit injuries or dirt bike injuries? You no, know, it's real. No, it's, um, uh, I always put so much focus into that stuff. It's when I'm doing stupid stuff, like playing Frisbee in the wet front yard. Oh yeah. Stupid stuff. Um, and it might be cause I'm super sore and kind of weakened from doing what I do, uh, working out wise or whatever. I don't know, but, uh, stupid stuff gets me hurt. So you've had to have surgery on both knees just like to yeah. repair the, meniscus or were there the left was both meniscus severed. And one shaved, and then the right was a LCL, so that was a little bit invasive. And then both menisci were severed. Fixed that up. Um, that was playing frisbee. No, that was doing track and field. <laughs> okay. Um, just a lot of jumping, twisting, things like that. Uh, yeah. Again, I started just cold turkey, so I think I just did a little bit too much too quick. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the three bulging and two slightly herniated disc in my low back. That was from Frisbee. Wow. Yeah. Just trying to catch it and foot slid like four or five feet and caught. And then, so that's actually not been a huge deal. Just took care of it. And when you say took care of it, did, did it require like any surgery surgery? This is on low back, like L L five or something. Yeah. 
Huh. Um, no, just a lot of chiropractic visits. Huh. Um, my yeah. wife had some issues here the last few years on with her back, so that's been top of our mind. Yeah. That's rough. And then other, in, you said it sped, it kind of spilled over into other injuries. What did, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I hurt my right foot riding in 2017. Uh, I don't know what I did. My heel hit the ground, toe stayed on the peg. So like foot was basically touching my shin. Um, and it's had a little mobility issue ever since. So I think that's translated up again to an already hurt knee with not full range of motion. And then, so the hip, you know, that's tightened up over the past two and a half years or so deal with that. And then like your QL tightens up and then your Latin tightens up. And then, so now it's dealing with a shoulder. It just, the whole right side's destroyed. You know, it's funny. I think, I mean, I, you sound like you're a lot more in tune with your body because you're talking about, you know, okay, this foot thing affected my knee and that affected my, you know, my hip and it's gone all the way up through my arm. And I'm sitting there going, man, I'm just, I'm probably not that, I'm probably not paying enough attention to my body because I don't, I don't see those connections. I might just be a wimp. <laughs> I doubt that's it. What I think it is, I, I'm looking at you. I don't think you're a wimp. Um, but I feel like maybe you have a, maybe I just need to be more in tune with stuff. Like, cause I, I notice on me. So I, I had, I tore my ACL on my right knee and you know, spent time, did the rehab on that. And I know for sure that now my left knee is not as good as it used to be. I can, I can just feel it. And I think a lot of that was because of how I favored, you know, the knee that I was rehabbing, just stupid things like standing, waiting for my water cup to be filled at the fridge. I'd put all my weight on the other knee. And that was, that has really been a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like it's been a problem. So it was like a year, I noticed a year after my surgery, you know, and then I'm like, wait a second. I'm always shifting my weight to the one side. So I'm putting all this extra stress. It sounds like it's not a big deal, but it has been. And even just sitting here now, I can just tell one of the knees is not as good as the other one. And it's the one that technically hasn't been injured yet. But I, I feel like it's coming just because of the extra stress that I put on it. But I guess my point is I'm not making the connection between like my hip and stuff. I'm like, man, I've there's probably, I probably have a similar thing where it's like, okay, I, now that there's the knee stuff and it's translated to my hips and maybe my lower back and maybe even up into my shoulders, but I'm not, I'm not in tune enough, I guess, to really notice. How, how do you, why do you think you have that ability to be like, okay, this is, I can make a connection between my knee and my hip. How, how is that because of all the athletic stuff that you've done? Is it because you've talked to physical trainers? Like, how does that, how do you make that connection? was very fortunate at UofL. We had an athletic training staff that at our disposal all day, all day, every competition, everything. So, you know, I learned a lot there. Um, strength and conditioning, they took our event and made us better at it through lifting or, you know, mobilizing, whatever it may be. Um, and over the years, just like, you know, a torn UCL, like it's going to make your arm a little tight, lack range of motion. So how can I get that back? You know, research that or whatever. I mean, as I get older, I haven't backed off the physical stress. I put myself through a lot. Um, so I think it's just going to take some tweaks because, uh, the past couple of weeks been rough with uh, little strains here and there, but part of it. Yeah. Well, I think that you're in a good position to be able to maintain 
good fitness. And that's another kind of cool thing about having a sport like this in your life is, I mean, it forces you, it, in most cases, it forces you to keep a certain level of physical fitness, you know? So, and I think that's good. I think that, uh, the more you ride, the, you know, the longer, the better health you're going to have throughout your life. You know, it's, it's one of the things we take it, we take for granted so much is just our own, our own health. And I think I do just as much as everyone, cause I've had pretty good health throughout my life. And then if you have some little, little physical ailment, it gives you this taste of like, Oh, what, what is the other side going to be like if I let, if I let myself go and it's kind of terrifying. Oh yeah. I'm just more worried about being so hurt. I can't do what I want to do. Um, so, you know, not just with riding, but working out and you know, the neck thing or whatever shoulders, knees, you can get around that, but your neck and your back, it's hard to get around that. So, so where do you, where do you stand on things like braces, neck braces, things like this? What's your, I'm, what's your feeling on that? Um, I wear knee braces for one. They were free. Uh, they were a gift. Um, but I think I'm, when they wear out, I'm probably gonna get away from them. Just use knee pads. Um, cause you know, you tip over in a turn and there's a rock there. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah. But I don't think I need the brace. I don't really think it's doing much except for tons of surface protection. Other than that, that's the only reason I wear it. What about, what, what about neck brace? What do you think of that? I've never worn one. Um, I, I can see Ryan Hughes, his point about neck braces. Yeah. He's, I, I didn't know, but he's totally against it. Totally. Okay. And, and I'm like, I'm, I can go either way on it, but he makes a lot of, he makes a lot of kind of good points about like, Hey, look, you're bracing the body. It was never meant to, it's meant to move, mm-hmm. you know, and then you're putting, and that's one of the things I've worried about is, okay, like a neck brace. If you have a neck brace on, you're just transferring that energy to somewhere else. You know, and how do we know that that's the right place to transfer the energy? Every hit, every crash, every everything, they're all unique. The way your body position, the way that the momentum is going, and how do we know that you're, this is going to be better? I, I don't think that we do, you know? I'm no doctor, no scientist, but, you know, some people talk about how it's worse. Um, I can see that, too. If it, if it torques you in a certain way, because now you have to go around a solid object instead of going, you know, proper body mechanics, I guess, if that's possible on a crash. Um, yeah, I have a, there's a, um, chiropractor that I see. He's, he's awesome because he's not the kind of chiropractor that, you know, wants you to come back all the time. He's like, Hey, if you've got this issue, yeah, let's have a few sessions. And then I don't want to see you again until something else happens. So I haven't even been to him for like two and a half years, but I've gone to him a few times in my dirt biking career because like something is weird with my neck or whatever. And I've, and he's a dirt biker too. And I've asked him, what are you thinking about neck braces? He's like, I don't wear one. He's like, I don't really recommend it. So he's like, I don't have super strong feelings one way or the other, but I work on people's spines every day and I ride dirt bikes and I don't wear one. And I'm like, that's pretty interesting. Fair enough. You know, <laughs> you know, and he's like, cause he said the things, the protection, he's like, I don't think they're giving you given protection to where they need to give it to you. It's protecting something but it, you're transferring energy to another spot and he's like i just i don't think it's he's like i'm not convinced it's protecting me in the things that i'm worried about so he doesn't wear it and then yeah you're ryan hughes he just was going off about you know bracing things and i have i don't have one in here but i i started wearing i i was i wear my acl i mean a brace for my knee um, and I think it was good, at least, especially during the rehab process. And I've, I wore my braces pretty religiously for almost two years. And now I'm getting to the point where I pick and choose and I probably will, I probably will continue to 
wear them less and less and less. But I do think the knee pads are like essential oh, just yeah. be just because you got your knee cap, you know, and you come down on something and it's just, man, there's too much, too much energy going into there. I want to spread that energy out over my kneecap. Um, and yeah, so that's interesting. Dude, how many times have you been on a hill kind of catty corner to it and just slipped? Yeah. And, you, and yeah. it's so rocky. There's your knees going to hit something eventually. So I would always wear a pad, but yeah, I think I'll get away from the brace once they wear out. Yeah, I'm kind of in that same. It, it, I think almost more than anything, what the knee brace did for me, because I had I have custom braces. I think one of the best things it did was just give me mental confidence. You know, it gave you that little bit of a mental confidence, like okay, I've got a little bit of extra, you know, protection here, and so then that helps you to just focus on the riding rather than think about thinking about an injury or whatever. And and that's been kind of a cool thing with my injury is. The only time I think about it, I guess it's probably pretty common for people. The only time I think about it is when I see a situation that is exactly like the one that I was in when I got injured. Luckily, I was on a trials bike and I was just playing around on a rock and I still do that type of stuff. But if I'm out riding on a trail or whatever, it never enters my mind because I'm usually going faster. If you get injured at zero miles an hour and most of your dirt biking is, you know, five to 50, then you, it doesn't enter into your mind. It's just when you like, Hey, we're going to play around on this rock over here. It kind of comes into my mind, but do you ever have that? Do you ever have those, those worries where maybe you, you got injured, you had a big crash and then you come back to that same situation. Does it get in your head? How do you deal with that type of thing? Growing up? It wasn't, I can't remember any of that. Um, cause where I rode, we had to come back. <laughs> so if you wanted to keep riding, you had to, deal with it again so which might be the best thing for us um i say us the guys i rode with um motocross yes i don't scrub anymore <laughs> okay <laughs> i you know say more about that uh broke some ribs had a concussion uh didn't really remember three guys there helping me because it just went haywire you tried to scrub and and like the bike what happened i think i was tired just super i've never scrubbed so i i'm, I'm <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen guys scrub. I probably shouldn't have been scrubbing <laughs> at my speed. I don't. Yeah. I'm not going to gain enough to matter. Yeah. And I realized that after I knocked myself out, but yeah. Um, broke some ribs concussion. Didn't really remember the guys helped me off the track or whatever. So I was like, yeah, I'm done with scrubbing. I'm not fast enough anyway. <laughs> huh? Well, that's good. Good to know. I, I doubt I doubt I'll ever get to the point where I start scrubbing. I'd ha- I'd first have to start riding tracks, and I think I think I would like to start doing more of that, just because I can see how, you know, everything on two wheels is is helpful. It, cornering is probably one of my weakest, um, you know, facets of my riding, and it's because I'm not forced to do it. If you're trail riding, you know, you see a corner one time, and it's usually not. It's usually just like winding. They're usually not corners, you know. Whereas in motocross you're getting corners all the time. It's like the biggest thing. It's like corner, you know, jump show corner for dough, whatever that, <laughs> yeah. whatever that thing was. That's funny. You say that. Um, so I was off the bike for two years. My buddy, uh, we met through CrossFit, stuff like that. Got me back into riding cause he rode and then he just jumped anything. He was younger than me. I think he was like 19 at the time, 18. I was 25. So what's he scared of? Nothing. Right? I'm terrified of jumping. <laughs> Had never done it really. Um, not to that level of a full size bike, full size track, you know, hundred foot tables and stuff like that. I'd done like 50 feet maybe. So, but I always cornered pretty good. I had no other options 
as a kid, you know, you're only 60 acres. You're going to turn around at some point. Yeah. Uh, you're to turn a lot. Yeah. And the arena cross track and cross head tight turn and stuff like that. So really focused on cornering. So I was able to keep up with him just because of corners, even though I didn't jump anything. So either he's a really awful at corners or I'm, I was a little bit better. Who knows? Um, but you know, started jumping everything and things changed, I guess. Yeah. What's your favorite type of riding? I mean, I know you mentioned that you're doing motocross now until you're too slow for it, which I probably could take issue on that. I don't think that you're ever too slow to too do old. anything. <laughs> too old. But so what, what's your, what's your favorite type of riding right now? Is, is it the motocross? I know you've got some interest in off-road. You've got roots and kind of like the GNCC type stuff. What's your perfect day on a motorcycle right oh, now? Oh, man. Well, I mentioned earlier, I've always been kind of a product of my environment with riding. All I had was trails and woods. And just south of where I grew up, like 100 yards, the topographic map is black. It's so steep and just, it's, you wouldn't believe it in Indiana. But if you look it up, it's crazy. Um, I think it's only like 400 feet elevation, but it's sheer. And so that's all we had to ride. You know, the field gets boring. This flat woods gets boring. Yeah. Um, so we went out there and there was old logging trails and, you know, people had made, you know, deer hunting trails or whatever the, where they walked off to the side of the cliff or whatever. And so that was always the scariest and that's what I wanted to do. And so I didn't find out about hardened arrow stuff until I was probably 20. I was out of riding. It was like probably mm-hmm. 24 or something like that. Taddy Blazusiak type of thing. Yeah. Um, on YouTube. And I was like, man. Obviously, he's more incredible, and that terrain's tougher, but I did similar stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. And so that's what I want to do, and that's where my skill set is, in my opinion. Um, But I just don't have it anymore. That land has changed hands over the years, and yeah. logging and, uh, you know, for growth and everything. like It's just impossible to ride it now, especially with the law. Um, nobody used to care. So we just wrote it. They said, don't get hurt and don't sue us. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but now motocross is, there's more tracks than, you know, off-road parks around and Jeeps side-by-sides destroy dirt bike trails. It's not fun. Um, the nearest single tracks like five hours away that I know of in West Virginia. So I just ride motocross for one, because I wasn't allowed to, and I'm getting it in while I can. Um, two, cause that's all I got. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And and hard enduro and off-road style riding and racing has gotten a lot more popular in the last decade or so. Um, and one of the ways that you, about the only way you can keep side-by-sides off of a dirt bike trail is make it too hard for them to go on. It's got to be too steep. You know, if you go, if you make a trail, um, not that we make trails, but if a trail is, <laughs> I shouldn't. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. If you make a trail, if you take a trail in a place where it's just so steep that a four-wheeler slash side-by-side is going to roll down and everyone will die, that's how you keep that's how you keep them off motorcycle trails. Otherwise, you can't. You just like some kid decides to go down it, and next thing you know, it turns into a Jeep road, and it's kind of frustrating. We have that stuff, like Haspen Acres in Indiana. I think it's one of the hills is called uh, Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jeeps, I mean, the hill's only, what, three, 400 feet? So that's a long way to roll, but you're still in a Jeep. I mean, you could survive. But probably. if you if you take it straight up the hill, then the Jeep will do it. But if if you side hill across that thing on yeah. your trail, then the Jeep's not following you. Because yeah. they're like, we're going to roll all the way down. Yeah. Like, it, we can't make this. And so that's what we do, you know, around here is if, if, if you're making a trail, if you're trying to cut a trail in. Not that I've ever done that, but if you're trying to cut a trail in, <laughs> I have friends that do. 
then you just make it into a nasty area. Yeah. It's like this is a place where you can't really take a four-wheel vehicle. In their defense, I don't want to, you know, talk bad about Haspen. I've had a lot of fun there. I think they cater more to those guys because there's more of them. Yeah. You know, there's 50 side-by-sides and 20 Jeeps and 10 bikes there. So – in yeah. their defense, yeah, it's got. I don't. I can't, I can't even believe how the how the offer. I mean, the UTV industry has grown. I mean, it's just insane. And the machines are expensive. Like, obviously, dirt bikes are expensive, but these these other side by sides are twice, sometimes three times the money. Oh yeah, you know. And then people are putting a ton of money in these things. They buy this, you know, whatever Can Am or Polaris one thousand XP for for twenty five grand, and then they put ten thousand dollars worth of upgrades into them, and it's like. Okay, you got a $35,000 like mini trophy truck. I I mean, obviously guys like it. I just don't I don't see it. I don't see it. Yeah, I buy used dirt bikes. I'm going to beat the hell out of it anyway. So why do I need a new one? <laughs> yeah. What do you think See, people ask me this all the time like how long do you think your car would last if you drove it as hard as you ride your dirt bike or your truck, whatever it is? Um <laughs> It's not going to be good. <laughs> um, I, again, I, you know, over the years, I'm not fast enough to really hurt a motor, but suspension, I'm, fork seals and stuff didn't stand a chance. I'm 210 pounds. And, you know, as I got better, you get faster. And that's what I poured my money into is suspension. I've never done a motor that didn't need it. Like you said, I'm just not good enough. But suspension, yeah, I'm a little bit faster and heavier, especially than maybe it was built for. So that's yeah. what I put my money into. And it made a world of difference. Literally five, 10 seconds a lot faster just totally. doing the same effort. Um, just because you know what it's going to do and you're not terrified of, you know, bottoming out everywhere in a straight stretch. Um, just whatever. <laughs> yeah. No. So you're, you're, you're at the, you're at the weight where you've got to put stiffer springs on. I didn't know you were 210. You don't look, you don't look 210. You're just, you're carrying it well. Thank you. I you you work look on it. you look you look like one eighty five, just solid solid muscle, I guess. So people people often most of the time when people guess my weight, they guess it at like uh, fifteen pounds heavier than I am. Really? Because I have teeny little bones. So people <laughs> like it's just been throughout my life. Everyone guesses fifteen to twenty pounds heavier than I really am, and I'm like, I take that as a compliment because I'm like, I'm heavier than you, th- or I'm I'm lighter than you think. Little teeny bones. Yeah, I, got, I get like just a little touch offended when everybody's like you weigh about 180 like nah 210 so i just offend, i just offended you already didn't take an hour didn't even take it well, no kidding. it took an hour it was an hour and 26 minutes according really? to this timer so it took a while we're doing all right we are so just kind of in closing here like what what is what is your dream bike and and what what's your preferred bike setup i mean where what is what is your dream right now goodness that's so tough i'm in the motocross phase so the bike I got, I'm good with it. You know, Ryan Sipes' bike, the motor's tuned so easy to ride. Um, it was kind of weird getting on it because I was like, dang. It's a 19 KTM 450 SXF. Mm-hmm. It's got all his stuff, but he kept his suspension, so I got to redo that. But the motor is just incredible. And uh, I take it to my suspension guy pretty soon. Dialed suspension if you're looking for it. Nice. And, uh, yeah, Danny Dunn, he does a really good job. People are starting to ship it into him and – I think he started maybe four or five years ago, and now it's all he does. So good for him. He's another guy who's super passionate. He's like, I don't want to do anything but suspension, and that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I, you know, not that it means anything coming from me, but I just really proud of a guy like that. Um, 
And so I take it to him, you know, and he does a great job and it'll probably be my favorite bike, but my dream bike, mm, I don't know. Probably just like a rockstar edition TE 300. I probably it's funny because dirt bikes are one of the only things on the planet that you can, as a consumer, we can go out and buy like a rocket ship. It, what we can buy as far as dirt bikes, doesn't matter if it's two stroke, four stroke, whatever track bike, enduro bike, we can buy the tip of the spear. Um, you can't go buy a formula one car. Like what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is you have trail bikes and then you have these racing bikes, whether it's motocross or enduro, they're literally the tip of the spear. It is cutting edge. I understand the race teams have like some different, a little bit different stuff or whatever, but at the same time, you know, Ken Roxon or whatever could, could, could jump or, you know, jump on your bike and go be competitive on it, and you know, destroy me. And, and we've seen it. We've seen it where like even a guy, they say in motocross or supercross where Dean Wilson can go out there buy a bone stock Husqvarna 450 and then go out there and like get competitive and win back a factory ride on a on. So my point is in, in these dirt bikes, we can ride basically the tip of the spear in cars. You can't do that. The, the fastest cars in the world are these formula one cars. You can't just go buy that. And even if you could go buy that, you couldn't drive it. Yeah. You know, whereas we sit there and we're like, oh, I'm going to go buy this tip of the spear thing. I'm going to go. I've never ridden a motorcycle before. I'm going to go get a 450. It'd be like a kid, 16 year old kid going out there and riding and driving a formula one car for the first where in what other sport can you do that? I mean, I it's safely, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's, but it's just crazy. And and everyone thinks that they need the best one. Whereas I always tell people, you're better off to start off with a Corvette. Like you could you can be a 16-year-old kid, and yeah, a Corvette's probably not the best one to start out with. But it, if you get a Corvette, it's going to be better than you getting a Formula One car for your first one, you know? So, so you know, the old bikes, they were well used. I mean, beat up. So grew up on those. But, you know, when I you know, started making my own money and, you know, doing a little bit better uh, financially. I was like, I'm going to get nice bikes. I'm going to get a bunch of them. Why not try them all? And so I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Um, and this one only had 40 hours on it. So why not get it? Good price. Ryan Sipes bike. Sounds pretty good. How right? did that come up? Like, how did you? He sold it to one of his friends and his friend got hurt and he didn't want to see it sit. And he put it up, I think. It spent like eight hours on Facebook Marketplace, and I was like, "Okay, I'll go look at it." I didn't even know it was his bike. Uh-huh. I was like, "I'm gonna go look at it." Okay, I'm in, I'm in the market for a KTM. I want to get off this Honda because it was brutally powerful. You want to talk about a fast bike? It just scared me. I couldn't hang on to it. Like it was unsafe. How not good enough I was to ride it. Yeah. Anyway, and so I get there, and he looked familiar. And I was like, "You, you know, we rode together many times. We just didn't know it." He's better than me, but, uh, and he was like, yeah, this was Ryan Sipes bike and it's got his, you know, name on the bar pad or the clamp and everything. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Doesn't make me any faster. So is it the 350 or the 450? Okay. Cause he rides everything. Yeah. Like he just rides, you know, it was his flat track bike for a while. Wow. He flat tracked it. Then he put, you know, his suspension on it and rode it at South Fork where he frequents in the summertime. And then he took his suspension and put the stock bag on it and sold it. That's cool. Yep. 
Have you ever have you ever ridden like any of these like super hopped up suspensions like factory type suspension or cone valves or any of this stuff? Um, Danny Dunn, who does dial suspension, he pretty much does the same thing. So if what he says is true, yes. Um, but I haven't bought it. It's a lot of money for those yeah. coatings and things like that. Yeah, it's hard for me to justify, especially where I'm right in the weight range for most of these bikes. I just, I, I mean, and I've spent money on suspension before. Um, and sometimes it, sometimes I can tell and sometimes I can't, you know, so I'm like, and there have been times, a lot of the stuff I do, like on my YouTube channel, I would say 90% of everything that I try, I, it never gets a social media post. There's no YouTube video. It's just like, oh, what am I going to do? I, I did this thing. Am I going to make a video on this? No, I'm not, you know, but I, there have been times where I've done, spent money on suspension and I'm like, this is worse. It's just night and day better in my experience. Like the, yeah. The in some, in some it, cases it's better. In some cases for me, it's been worse. Yeah. Um, at first I think he gave me a little bit too much credit. He valved it pretty stiff. Um, but you know, he's like, dude, I'm telling you just ride it hard as you can. And it, it made me less tired to ride. It was crazy. He was right, but night and day, you know, instead of yeah. blowing through a breaking bump, you can like come up short on a hundred foot table and not bottom out and not. Yeah. Crazy. I, I was thinking about that cause we were just watching supercross from Saturday night and you see these guys and I'm excited cause we're going to supercross here in the weekend in person, but you see these guys like come up short on these whatever. And in my head, in my head, I'm thinking like, if I do that, I'm dead. Yes. But A, they have great technique and B, they have amazing suspension where it's like you can like totally case that or just come up way too short on on like a jump face and still ride through it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing what they can do. So, well, this has been awesome. Do you have any like parting thoughts? I mean, one of the things, one of the other things you said is the light and the darkness of it. Like you're talking about your dream bikes and the light and darkness of riding. What do you mean by that? Like, So the light, we've talked about it. It's incredible. You can focus, stress relief, uh, you know, get in tune with your body, whatever it may be. Um, the darkness is when you get hurt and you can't do it and you spend time away from it and it's all you want to do. Or, you know, the, the thing I love so much has me broken right now and hurting every move I make, whatever it may be. Um, so it's a give and take. You get the dark on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's there's very few things in life that really have this type of power. At least it hasn't been for me, and I guess it's different for everyone. I mean, some people basketball just like takes over, you know. And I think a lot of it too is uh, exposure. They've never ridden a dirt bike, <laughs> so they, you know what I mean. And Not, maybe maybe it's because of fear, you know. And that makes me wonder: like, are the best really the best, or were they just did they have the most exposure, the most money poured into them, the most time? Uh, Cause you know, there's ranges when you're a kid, you just going to be better because you're better. And then you start getting to where, well, now you can put some work into it and now you're better because you work hard. And then there's the money, the equipment, the seat time, all those things, um, mixed I, together. Nature and nurture is my thing. You know, I haven't really thought about it, but I would err on the side of, no, we have no idea who the best motor motorcycle riders are because the barrier to entry is so high. I agree. So I, I think, I think, Probably we see, we've seen probably, probably the one that we've seen the, the best would be soccer or for international fans, like, like football, traditional, like soccer, football. We've probably seen closer to the best of those guys. Cause the barrier to entry is so low. Yeah. All you need is a ball in a neighborhood uh, and, and then 
a soccer player can can like rise up. Yes. And and then basketball might be the next one because if you have a ball and a hoop somewhere or like whatever, you know, guys can come over and the barrier to entry to basketball is is fairly low. Maybe you could say the same thing about track. Like maybe we know who the fastest person in the world is because you didn't need to buy anything. But with with the barrier to entry for dirt bikes is so flipping high because it t- these machines are expensive and then we didn't even get into how the cost of like the safety equipment. You know, these kids email me and they're like, I'm thinking about this bike. I've got $1,500 is, do you think this is a good one? And my response is, um, okay, you don't have $1,500. You have, you know, a thousand because you need at least $500 worth of safety equipment. I'm riding with a lot more than that, you know? And so that it, the barrier to entry, the barrier to entry to this sport is so high. I think it's probably safe to say, we most, the best dirt bike riders on the planet have never even touched a dirt bike. They never even got the opportunity. You know, it's, you had to have some sort of, you had to have access to it. You had to have some, your parents had to have some disposable income. Maybe you needed to live in a place where, you know, if you live in Manhattan, you you, you will never ride a dirt bike. You think about all the kids that live in these, you know, high density cities or just low income areas or whatever that they've, they can never do this. Yeah. And it, it kind of makes, you know, I think it makes me, it makes me sad to think about that, but there's, you know, I was blessed to be born into a family that, you know, we had, my dad worked super hard. He didn't make a ton of money, but he had enough money and enough drive to like, Hey, here's this little four wheeler for you, you know? And that was awesome. And I think about my kids, I'm pouring everything I can into this. And so I'm putting them on brand new machines, you know, and that's an opportunity that most kids in the planet are not going to get. Yeah. Just look at the gap between first and 22nd at a pro race. One second. Like in the main. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> they're getting lapped. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. imagine like me to Ryan Sipes or you to Graham Jarvis. Yeah. Like the gap. That's what I mean. If there was more people, like you said, that had exposure, they would fill those gaps potentially, but we'll never know. Yeah. So, and it's maybe one of the reasons why like it is getting more competitive in those racing circles is because it more and more people are, it's getting more exposure to it. I mean, I just think that right now your top 10 riders are way better than your top 10 riders were 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, like the, it's deeper, it's a deeper talent pool and it's going to continue probably to get like that, but still we'll never know, you know, who's the Michael Jewel. I mean, obviously right now they say Ricky Carmichael is the, is the goat, but is Ricky Carmichael as much of a goat as Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Yeah. There's more discretion. Like there's too many variables. Yeah. There's yeah. so many variables. And then. Michael Jordan just had a ball and it, you know, so there's more people that have touched basketballs and there's more people that have touched soccer balls than there are people that have touched motorcycles just because of the fact, the costs involved. I think off-road is a bit less because you got 2000 people at a GNCC literally in a weekend, just on the dirt bike day. And you got maybe 150 at a local motocross race. So motocross is even more vastly separated yeah. In my humble opinion, I don't yeah. really, you know. Well, we could talk all day. I'm so thankful that you came by. This this worked out awesome. I'm I'm. It's just been it's been great. I so. really do appreciate it. And a quick shout out, if I may, to my parents. Yeah. Again, they were instrumental, obviously, in getting me to ride. They didn't make a ton of money, but they worked super hard. And they were like, "Well, he loves it. Let him ride." And my girlfriend, she uh, never nags. She's super supportive. She even wants to ride with me. So she's been really great. Do you have a bike for her? Yeah. She just bought her first motorcycle too. What what did you what did what does she have? 
She's been riding a TTR one twenty five. Awesome. I've got the Honda version of that. Yeah. Sitting out here in the in the shop or in the garage anyway. She can do Willie up the street if you let her. That's awesome. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that is awesome. No, that's great. But, well, it's been super fun. And I, I just want to thank you. Like we've you've emailed me over the over the years. You've supported me. I've seen like you've you've purchased gear for me. You're wearing you're wearing my hat today. So that that's uh that's really that's just important. It's important to me. It's important to know. I mean it's 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 useful. It means a lot, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that there are good people like you out there that, um, you know, you get it and you're like, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna try to support this guy. He's doing this crazy, stupid thing. He's trying to support his family by making YouTube videos. And and uh, none of this would be possible without people like you. Like that hat, that hat that you have on your head, that put food on my table, you know, and I, that, I can't tell you how thankful I am for that, you know. So if I've put out some information that was useful, um then you're like, Hey, I'm going to repay this guy by doing this thing. And, and that means a lot to me. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. It just started, I put my hat on my dirt bike and I had passion literally on the side of my bike. And I said, that guy has passion, you know, from the outside looking in, he quit a comfortable job to take a huge risk, you know, making YouTube videos, but mostly about riding. So that's what hit me. And I sent that email. So yeah. Thank you. Well, when people say like, Oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do dual sport riding and stuff? And like the answer is because I'm not passionate about it. Yeah. You know, if you want to do something like this, like you better be passionate about it because like the money isn't going to be there. I'm not saying that like we're, we're not going broke, but at the same time, Hey, I didn't do this because this is what my financial advisor said is going to be the right thing to do. That wasn't, that isn't the case. You know, maybe eventually I'll get to where it's a point where I'm not stressed about money, but I mean, it's just one of those things you've got to be passionate. And so, Hey, why do I not do dual sport riding right now? Because I'm not interested in it. And if I'm not interested in it, how am I going to even have any of that passion come across? And the only reason any of this works is because there's guys sitting there, you know, in their garage in Indiana going, dude, that guy's passionate about this. So if I just started making videos about, you know, I should have been making videos about braiding hair or women's makeup. I mean, they, that <laughs> stuff, that stuff does way better, you know, or even toys. Like my kids will be watching these stupid videos of like a kid playing with hot wheels. And I'm going, man, that you want to take a gut punch. You, if you like your, your business is like, I'm going to make these dirt bike videos and I'm going to spend hours doing this stuff and pour my whole life into it. And then you go look at the number of views that like a kid is getting by filming hot wheels coming down a freaking little track. And I'm like, this one has 5 million views, you know? And all he did is he had a hot wheel and a GoPro. And I'm just like, I picked the wrong thing. Supply the, and demand. Oh my gosh. So I'm like, these people, are like, oh man, it must be the awesome. I'm like, there are, so, there are just some things that you cannot, ex the pain, like the agony that you experience when you're like, I just spent 40 hours making this video. It got no more views than this other video that took me one hour. And oh, there's this kid over here in Timbuktu that took a cell phone shot of a Hot Wheel coming down a track. And it's got 70 million views. I mean, you're just like, dude, I, I want to just crawl into a hole. So anyway, that's my, that's my soap. That's my sob story. But thank you so much for coming by. Um, it's been awesome to, uh, to meet you and to meet your girlfriend. And it's fun. Thank so, you very much for having me in your home. We'll have to, we'll have to do it again when you, when you come back. To Absolutely. I'll bring so. a bike next time. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming by. That was an awesome discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Very articulate. Such a, such a cool dude. And uh, it was nice to meet uh, John and his girlfriend here. So 
Hey, if you guys want to support this podcast, if you want to support the project, one of the best ways you can do that is to go to Rocky Mountain ATV using my link. So go to dirtbikechannel.com and click on my links for Rocky Mountain ATV. That helps Rocky Mountain ATV know that I sent you. I get a small referral bonus for sending you to the website. There, It's the place where I buy almost all my you know, dirt bike stuff. Uh, Rocky Mountain ATV, they've got everything in stock. Usually, I mean, recently... Uh, with everyone buying everything, it's been hard for them and every other person, you know, every other retailer to keep things in stock. But uh, yeah, so go to dirtbikechannel.com and hit on hit my link for Rocky Mountain ATV. I've also got links for Motors, Motorsport and Amazon as well. Or you can send me an email if you want, if you have any questions, if you have podcast topic suggestions. I mean, I just had a gentleman reach out to me just a second ago with a podcast you know, topic suggestion, send me an email, Kyle at dirtbikechannel.com. That's the best place to get a hold of me. I respond to everybody that I see emails from over there. Uh, so, and I can, you know, answer your question, maybe. Uh, we'll see. And I will respond with my actual, you know, links for Rocky Mountain ATV, Amazon over there. So other ways you can support Dirtbike Channel, you can go and be a Patreon uh, supporter or support on PayPal. I have all those links over on my website, dirtbikechannel.com again. So beating a dead horse on that one. Uh, I hope everyone has a good week. It looks like we're going to have some better weather here in Utah now, and hopefully I'm able to get out and do some more riding because, man, it's it's April. Haven't really done a lot of riding yet this year. Oh, I also have a Dirtbike Channel sweepstakes that's happening on April 30th. Boom. The sweepstakes starts for three amazing motorcycles. I've got the 2020 uh, KTM 1290 Super Adventure S. It's a street bike. And then we've got two other dirt bikes, uh, the KTM 125XC and the Kawasaki KX250X. Amazing bikes. So that'll all be dropping on June or April 30th and going through June 30th. So hopefully everyone is having an awesome week and leave a single track. Thanks. <laughs>